Welcome to Catherine Flynn's podcast, Intelligent Edge Yoga, conversations for smart, compassionate practice. Each episode will guide and inquire into ethics-based spirituality within a modern paradigm of practice. Whether your practice is yoga, Ayurveda, meditation, or simply living a life full of intention, this is for you. I'd like you to take a moment to consider supporting this podcast through Patreon. Your pledges enable the continuation of the podcast. Patrons will also receive exclusive resources, uh, behind-the-scenes material for instructors, guided yoga and meditation sessions for yogis, and everything in between. This is just the start of something new and exciting. You can be a part of it by going to patreon.com slash intelligentedgeyoga and clicking on the large orange button. Thanks. Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hello, yogis. Before we get started today, I just wanted to share with you that there are still a few spots left in my November silent retreat. If you wanted to come and try a silent retreat that aims to be supportive in its programming. So there's a little more latitude. Uh, there are gentle and moderate yoga practices. And then there's a variety of meditation techniques that we do, including yoga nidra and uh, and a little uh, Ayurvedic foot massage before bedtime. So if you're curious about silent retreat, information is on the website. And there are also a couple of teaching methods programs that are coming up in October and November. There's queuing mantra and chant October 5th and 6th for those of you who are interested in communication as practice and the language of yoga as well as obviously the yoga of sound. And then in November, it's the not so pithy named understanding moving bodies and efficient, accessible yoga sequencing. So for those of you who are interested in some of the things I teach about movement and integrating functional movement into your yoga classes so that you preserve what you love about more traditional yoga, but also make the practice efficient for a greater diversity of bodies. Those four days are for you. Okay. I was still in university when Facebook was available to only university students in Canada and of course the United States. So my social network has grown since that time. And I think I've been on Facebook now. Well, I guess I have to think about when I left university, but I've been, <laughs> I've been on Facebook for well over a decade and I can see, you know, the friends from my undergrad years and then my graduate school and my marketing career and friends from home. And then, of course, uh, all the yogis and Buddhists and, and spiritual path friends that I've made along the way. And so my feeds have some distinct voices in them. And as yoga, Buddhism, mindfulness popularize, it's always interesting to see the personal and professional opinions of the yogis that I know and the people who enjoy it casually, but at, but post about their yoga journey. And then 
the more academic political friends that I have. And then the people that fall in between, there are a few yoga academics on my radar as well. And if you are at all similar to me in the content of your Facebook feed, you will notice that there's a conversation between yoga professionals and individuals in their audience. And the way that we often speak to those individuals are through, are through motivation and promotion of the powers of yoga, meditation, and mindfulness. You know, you do not need to suffer as much as you do. You can do this. This is transformative. This is life-changing. Just make space for it. Here's how. Tips and tricks for doing the thing. Treat yourself to doing the thing. And then on the more academic political side, I read a lot of voices that are saying too much pressure is being put on the individual because the systems at play are grossly unfair and the major players in those systems, corporations, government, policy, do not take sufficient accountability for the ramifications of the world that they are building in their interest or what we defined as in the public interest historically is not serving us as we have a richer understanding of what makes a satisfying life and the way we have organized society, the way we work, the way we move around the world, the way we support one another is insufficient for the challenges of the modern era. Then there is the much smaller group of voices that I see that will shock some of you, those of you who perhaps are not connected with some of the yoga academics or yoga culture critics that are out there. And those voices say that yoga is not about stress reduction. The purpose of yoga is not stress reduction, which is, I think, the only kind of funding that you can get for yoga research is, can yoga reduce stress? Have some money. So a lot of the headlines that you see are about the utility of yoga to help us cope with our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about today are the interplay of some of these voices and, and how yoga is stress reduction and how stress reduction is spiritual and political in its purposes and, uh, and about where uh, we need to get some of our own problems out of the way so that we can address the larger problems that we have collectively, which is a large part of the reason that I teach what I teach, because I do, I enjoy making beautiful spaces of exploration for people to explore some not so beautiful things. I try to create supportive spaces and there are times where they feel beautiful. But I firmly believe that in my own life, I have resolved 
some of the suffering that I had that I grew to realize was unnecessary as I cultivated the tools to suffer less. And so I wanted to share those. And that's, you know, that's how so many people ultimately start to teach yoga. You are not likely going to be received openly without defense if you try to tell someone that their stress isn't stressful. Right? That if you tell them that their stress experience is illegitimate because other people are more stressed out than they are. I think it's one of the fundamental misunderstandings in the conversation around privilege, actually, because when you tell someone that they enjoy privilege, uh, whether it's class privilege, you know, certain financial security or affluence, which is probably a lower threshold than you think. To qualify for the 1% in 2015, the most recent statistics we have available, your income had to be 225,000. And to be in the middle class, you were earning between 24 and 41,000. Which based on my understanding of what constitutes middle class, that's actually a lot lower than I was expecting. I thought, no, no, surely to be middle class, you had to be higher than that. But overall, the, the picture is not a good one. Between 1999 and 2016, the median Canadian mortgage debt rose from 95000 to 190000 And the debt to after-tax family income ratio rose from 94% to 165%. Canadian debt to income levels are over 20% higher than they were 12 years ago, and 83% of Canadians report stress specifically generated by their wages. We also know that between 1980 and 2005, the average earnings among the least wealthy Canadians fell by 20%. So we know that people experience a misunderstanding of, of sort of how privileged they are. And we know that debt is rising and cost of living is going up while wages are earning most dramatically for the top earners in society, which increases inequality. But of course, this is more dramatic depending on who you are in society. We know that mentally ill Canadians make up almost half of our homeless population. Children with disabilities are twice as likely to live in a household relying on social assistance. And one in five racialized families live in poverty in Canada, as opposed to one in 20 non-racialized families. This is where we start to look at what's called intersectional analysis. And sometimes that term isn't explained and it's, it's just used. And I think it's really important that if you want to invite people into conversations, you start to see where the conversation you're having is peppered with jargon and jargon doesn't mean a word that you've come up with to alienate people, but it can be used that way. It's, it's industry or field specific language that needs demystifying and intersectional could be one of those words. So intersectional is where you think of 
the different aspects of your person that shape your experience or an individual's experience. Because intersection implies a place where two things meet and that meeting space dictates your experience, I think of it as this big road that sort of all of humanity is walking down. So everyone's, everyone's walking down this one road. And then you might come to a fork in the road where based along sex, let's say, because that's the, that's the common one that we use, you know, men go one way and women go another way. But of course, we know that that sex is does not work that way that that we can embody in a variety of ways and then we have gender on top of that which is how we express ourselves how we express our identity and so we have these forking paths off these other roads and then off of that we have our uh, our race and our culture and our language and our financial situation and our mental health and all these different aspects of ourselves so that some of us actually find ourselves in a lot of company on the road that we're on. And some of us find ourselves in very small company because we've had so many intersections of our experience that there's just a few of us on that path. This intersectional approach and this understanding that some of us have less support, some of us have less company, and so are more likely to suffer the the consequences of systemic oppression, exclusion, etc., is pertinent to the conversation of stress reduction being political. And best exemplified by the quotation from African-American lesbian writer Audre Lorde, who in 1988 wrote, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. The first portion, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, has become part of the hashtag self-care culture. But Lord was writing at a time where she was battling breast cancer, which would eventually spread to her liver. And, and she was writing candidly about her experience because African-American women have higher mortality rates when it comes to breast cancer and probably other things as well because of their access to quality health care in the United States. For Audre Lorde and for other activists, and I'm particularly thinking about Angela Davis, who has talked about this as well, self-care is critical so that one can continue one's important work. And as I mentioned, all of us have work to do and all of us have stress to cope with, and that stress is real. But some people have more company and more favor in the systems that we live in than others. 
This is Audre Lorde talking to Blanche Cook in an interview, and Blanche uh, Cook had, has just asked her for a response to a review of a Writers' Congress that Lorde was at, that where the the reviewer basically said that he was bored and that there were and that there were latent racist tones to his review of the conference, and and this is how Lorde responds. Boredom. He was bored, bored in the midst of 3,000 writers coming together to share ideas. And I was thinking, I mean, imagine being bored. Well, that's something we've never experienced, have yeah. we? How, do you, how are you bored? That, you know, that is very sad. That's a very sad story you just told me about <laughs> Arthur Bell, whose review, by the way, I haven't read because the Congress was a, a difficult and exciting enough. Without reading bilious Without reviews. reading yeah. reviews of it. I don't know how you could review a conference unless you can share what it was you felt. And if he felt bored, then I feel yeah. really well, that, very Well, sorry. that's the sense you have of people who say they're bored, that they're just not alive in but, the way that we understand But the that question word. of living life to its fullest requires that we know at all times the possibilities of what feeling fully means. And I think that, the, that you know, boredom, ter- being turned off, being unwilling to grasp fully, even pain, is a way of keeping us moving in a very prescripted, very narrow, uh, very regimented position, i.e. to fulfill our part of the machine. When we live in what we are feeling, when we recognize a kind of measurement, internal measurement, as to what is really satisfying, then we're less likely to settle for that Mm non-life. And that's what makes living fully such a powerful, such a potent tool for both change and and movement. Mm -hmm. Lord herself would go on to integrate a lot of elements of spirituality and awareness of her own mortality and what that meant into her work. And she talks just there about, about cultivating care for ourselves and helping us align with what actually fills us up. And ultimately that that will require a removal from our participation in the, I'm going to use the term rat race. I remember reading a little article in the New York Times several months ago, and it was about a study about how cultivating mindfulness at work and participating in mindfulness workshops actually decreases motivation (laughs) and, and they see an overall drop in working extended hours. And I was a little confused by the tone because I thought, are they warning people don't don't have mindfulness workshops at work? Or are they saying, here's the information, but keep it to yourselves? And I, I admit, I sometimes forget what I've spoken about on the podcast, but it reminds me of my time in corporate marketing. And I worked for a company that you would recognize the name of. And I worked on this work that required so much investment of time on a computer because we worked with multinational teams. So the moment I woke up in the morning, my phone already had 
half an inbox of emails from Europe. And at the end of the day, I was still receiving emails from the West Coast. You could work all the time, and we often did, and there's nothing to show for it except the income that I earned. And well, let's be honest, that's gone now too. Um, but the work that we did was, it. there's nothing left of it. And so we drove ourselves into the ground sometimes for this, this totally ephemeral work. And the deadlines frequently got pushed back by the client. But if we pushed back the deadlines, you know, we had to be ragged before we could admit that we had to make a shift with some of our work schedules. And when you take a step out of it, you just realize how silly some of the content seems when you're not under the gun. This is to circle back to what I was talking about, about the difference between privilege and feelings of stress. I was thinking about privilege while I was on a flight recently to my sister's wedding and I was trying to change my two-year-old son in an airplane washroom, which is really gross. And I was trying to make it not gross for the people who were coming after us because changing a two-year-old is not that easy. And I was remembering that it's an immensely privileged thing to be able to afford to fly across the country and that many people miss out on important family celebrations because that's not a privilege that they have. And it's still a stressful situation. Acknowledging privilege can help us get some perspective on our stressful situations. But it also is going to take a a further accountability for those of us who have the privilege of more control over some of our decisions. I think about some of the friends that I have with very important jobs and the degree of time that they spend on planes or in front of computers. And our biology just was not designed to do it. We experience it as stressful and then we get confused about how much, uh, how much choice we have in the matter, right? We start to misconstrue the choices that we're making as obligations. And we really have no idea how stressful life really has become. In preparation for this talk, I started to look up what is a reasonable load for someone to bear, And if you ask Professor uh, Google such queries, you'll receive many free resources on accountability, uh, sleep hygiene, and the energy merits of a carb-free diet, which I am not advocating for. But this is what the internet will tell you, is it will tell you how you can do better. And we see this in the yoga industry as well. And an article that friends recently circulated, which I will link to as well in the show notes, was about a situation where an apartment building was rezoned in England and how the low-income residents, rather than being provided with information on where they could go and where they could find new housing, they were provided with stress reduction resources. And of course, 
I can see how, you know, the entire McMindfulness industry would seem to people when this is what's being promoted is that your very real stressful situations about housing security and food security are up to you to resolve because the stress can be reduced simply through magical thinking. And so it's, of course, both. You know, we can all reduce the stress in our lives and some people have more stress because they do not have their basic needs met. And there's a a documentary I'm really looking forward to going to see called Push, You Don't Live Here Anymore. And it's about housing as a basic human right. Anyway, so I was looking up you know, how much can we cope with? What is a reasonable load for our body mind? And this is where I started to find some of these statistics around debt load and, and then what else is on our plate. And so for example, in 2015, women in Canada, I'm going with Canadian statistics mostly today, we spent an average of 2.8 hours per day on housework, 54 minutes more than men, and a little more time on paid and unpaid work at just under eight hours a day. Of course, women disproportionately spend more time on unpaid work than men. Yet mothers with full-time jobs spend as much time as their stay-at-home counterparts did in the 1970s. And as the average age of parents with dependents increases, and I've seen this in a lot of my students, many people, the majority of the women, find themselves caregivers to children as well as aging parents. Women may have more of the unpaid caregiving labor, but even 56% of fathers said they would take a 10% pay cut to spend more time with their kids. And I think that, I think that's a really interesting conversation. I think we all need to work less. And again, leadership, who's going to lead the charge on working less? The whole idea of a specific workday has to do again with that accountability and extracting labor from people. I can see you, you are here, ergo you are achieving the work that I am paying you for. But we all know that that's not true. And so many studies support that that's not how people work well. We work well for a period of time and then we require a rest. And we will take a rest whether we are in our chair or not. Science fiction dreamed of technology making our lives easier. I didn't really watch much Star Trek, but I do remember uh, Earl Grey tea materializing from nowhere. It did not dream that it would open and close our days with inbox checks. I also can't remember if Captain Picard was asking for his emails at the end of the day. I also don't know if email was real by the time Star Trek was being made. Some of my students uh, are public servants and public servants in Canada are issued blackberries if they're of a particular level. And so I remember being in teacher training and seeing that ominous little flashing red light and it reminding me of the ominous little flashing red light of my blackberries of past We want less stress in our lives, but the task of being less burdened has fallen onto our plates as well, even though research supports that productivity can be increased with decreased hours and more periods of recovery. 
The work days are getting longer for those in professions who could have shorter and more productive days. And for those bound by hourly wages, programs to measure the impact of basic income have recently been cut in Ontario. So before you vote in your next election, remember to reach out to the people running to become your member of parliament or a member of provincial parliament and ask them, what are you doing to secure basic income for people? There's a program in Switzerland, a place that gets lots of things wrong, by the way, but they get this one thing right. I was told that if you have a project in mind that you would like to get off the ground, there is basic income available to you for two years to find out what you can do with that project. And I think that's such an incredible, incredible program. What are you capable of when you do not have to worry about being able to make ends meet? Because that's really where the more aspirational elements of yoga and meditation come into place. And even then, I'll say that this is where we need more facilitators with specific experiences. Most people that I've spoken to who became mothers will talk about how important it was for them to find other mothers because when you're in the thick of an intensely stressful time, you need people who understand what you're going through. And these friends and these communities could shift over the course of our lives. We may be bonded together through a particular experience in one era of our lives, only to find that they were a really great support then, but things have changed and we need different kinds of support now. But this is why facilitators with unique insight into the realities of someone's situation are so vital and so needed. And in the yoga community, this is how, you know, this is the part that we can play is trying to widen the circle. Who are we inviting in, in explicit ways? Are we making available trainings and opportunities uh, to other people, recognizing that that's one aspect of the hurdle. Just because someone has the financial barrier cleared to their participation doesn't mean that they will feel welcome in a space. And we can help make spaces more inclusive and more welcoming by using imagery that shows a diversity of people, of skin color and age and mobility. And that also means that in our individual practices, we can promote yoga that is less aesthetically driven. I was in a coffee shop recently and I saw a poster for Pilates classes. And I have to tell you that what the person on the poster was doing, I would have, I think, a strong experience of ouch if I were doing it. And so I can only imagine what other people would be looking at, even though the text says all levels welcome. If that's the image that you're using to portray what you're going to do, you know, it, it, aspirational imagery doesn't really work that way. People want to see themselves reflected in a space to feel welcome there. And so it's a little thing that we can do, but we want to pay attention to how are we conveying what happens in our spaces, who is participating in our spaces. Because as 
pretty much everybody who's listening knows we really need spaces that are not about participating in our lives in the way that we have been trained to do. I said to my partner, Alex, once that I end every day thinking about how I could have been more efficient, how I could have been more present. And he said to me that he ends every day feeling like he needs more time off. Um, I'm not sure who needs more help. But our collective wellness feels generally summarized by my stepmother's experience seeing her doctor. Before her autoimmune disease was diagnosed, she told her GP that she was unusually exhausted. Their response was, you and everyone else. Fatigue and exhaustion are no longer signs that something is wrong. They have become signs that one is productively participating in the world. If you're not tired, if you're not so busy, you are not working hard enough. As I mentioned, I've been unable to find material on just what is reasonable for a human to, uh, to achieve in a day and what's the right amount of workload to thrive because we know that a, a certain amount of work, a certain amount of purpose is necessary for us to thrive. But I think that's in part because we've forgotten how much work daily activities actually take a toll on us. Friends of mine who run mindfulness-based stress reduction programs say that the number one fodder for practice when they invite their participants to share from their takeaway lessons, the number one fodder for practice is driving. Aside from the obvious risks inherent with driving, the bottled stress of driving causes a range of undesirable outcomes from anxiety, an increase in work absenteeism, lowering of productivity and compassion for your coworkers. Driving has actually, now that I think about it, I wonder, do the people with the longest commutes, are they the grumpiest? Make that experiential observation at work. Driving has been a part of our modern life for so long that we forget it's a hyper vigilant activity with high stakes. But it's so normalized as a passive activity that many people suspect they can drive and text at the same time. I remember a professor telling me that with every 15-minute incremental increase to commute time, a person was that much more likely to not volunteer in their community or donate blood. And driving cultivates this sense of isolation. We're king of our own little kingdom without the body language and the, the subtle ways that we communicate with each other. And then if we're not donating blood or volunteering in our communities or participating in different circles, you can understand how that increased sense of feeling alone in all of it and then feeling like life is negatively happening to you, again, this can misconstrue the difference between privilege and stressful feelings. We also forget that this is really impoverished togetherness. My mother loves a story from my youth when my boyfriend and I were driving into the city and two men in another vehicle aggressively bullied us into passing. 
only to then be stuck in a deadlock next to us when traffic ground to a halt on the DVP. And if you grew up in the GTA, you know, you know that exit, you know that you're like, we downtown Toronto parking lot. And then you're in a parking lot until everyone integrates and it picks back up again. So I was sitting next to this car with these drivers and as the passenger, I could stare at them for a while and they ignored me and watched the road serenely calm. And so I reached for my notebook and pens and largely scribbled the word karma on a sheet of paper and held it to the window. When I peeked around it, they were laughing and waved. Not everyone responds so well to even a light reminder of accountability. When we feel confronted by feedback, we ask ask ourselves, don't they know how stressed I am? Don't they know how difficult my life is? They do and they do not. Feelings that are labeled as undesirable, like anger, jealousy, fear, can be signs that something is amiss. Sometimes the scope of these feelings are signs that something is terribly amiss. Lingering trauma, injustices without sign of resolution. My meditation practice brings me back to an awareness of how possible it is to be gentle in the world. But depending on what's happening for you, it might be a practice that helps you learn to be gentle with yourself because you are fighting really, really big battles out in the world. The average practitioner may be surprised to know that some people view stress reduction as a modern co-opting of real yoga. Depending on, of course, how you are going to consider the different threads and styles and lineages of yoga, Yoga is about understanding the truth of the universe, the indivisibility of all things. And some yogis historically have stayed in the world and participated in it and taken themselves out of it at necessary times. The the Buddha did the same thing. He was very much in the world in a way that he didn't understand the privilege that he had. And then by moving beyond his area of familiarity, he learned to understand that his experience was not other people's experiences. And so then he went through so many kinds of suffering to try to gain insight into, you know, what is it that we know? What is true? And I enjoy the element of the story where some of his followers wouldn't follow him eventually because he ultimately settled on the middle way. And he used the parable of the lute or the sitar or the guitar, if you'd like a modern image, that the string that plays the most harmonious sound is the one that is tuned not too loose, for then it it won't vibrate, it won't make the sound, and not too tight, for then it will break. The most harmonious sound comes from the middle way, just the right amount of tension. We talked about this earlier with people needing a purpose, a vocation. They need something to do, but not too much to do. 
And so I really enjoy that his followers were like, no, you were trying to starve us into enlightenment. And now you're saying that's not the way. But this is how it goes. So often we have to we have to find out what it's like to not have enough. And that's one of the things I've probably mentioned this before that stuck with me from reading about different refugee experiences is that they will often say it's the waiting, it's the not having anything to do that is is part of the terrible aspect of their plight because there's nothing they can do to help change what's happening. There's no action that they can take. And people who are awaiting diagnoses will say that as well, is that at least once they find out what's happening, they can take action. You know, we are designed to take action, karma in this world, and we need just the right amount. Suffering is not noble in and of itself, even though there are some ascetic yogis out there who live extremely not even simple. We're not even talking about, you know, one outfit, shaved head. (laughs) I'm talking about self mortification, deprivation, all to demonstrate that the physical world is such an illusion and to experiment with embodiment to help them see the truths. But of course, We do the practices because the practices have an effect, but how we live them out, that's the ethical component of it. And if yoga is about that indivisibility and if a central component of our embodiment is this call to action, this call to karma then helping reduce suffering in our lives and reduce suffering in other people's lives is a critical element of the spiritual path. Because there's no such thing as you got here on your own. At my sister's wedding, the person who did the ceremony was saying that we've all arrived here through the labor and love of our ancestors, regardless of the feelings that we have for them, uh, we arrive in this moment because of them. And we arrive in this particular moment wherever we are because of the stewardship and the lives of the people who lived here before us, which means that we have a responsibility to them or as phrased in a funnier way, this is Eddie Izzard on the first Thanksgiving. But in, in America, it was different. The Founding Fathers landed in 16... They set off from Plymouth and landed in Plymouth. How lucky is that? This is Plymouth. We've just come from Plymouth. We've gone round the circle. Thanks back on the bus. They finally got there. They said, ah, this is where our God has brought us to. We can, we can practice our religion here. We can raise a family. There's nobody here. Excuse me. There's nobody here. Yes, a land empty of human existence. Who the fuck are these guys? What's all this, please? No, we don't want any of your food, thank you very much. Just put some clothes on. Meanwhile, meanwhile, that winter... Excuse me, do you have any food? I love all this, love it. 
<laughs> yes, I'm sorry, we're a bit brusque when we first arrived. We didn't realize you owned the entire country. But you have no system of ownership. Hmm, interesting. Um, maybe that can come in useful later. Food, thank you very much, very nice. Yes, there's more of us coming, but we all keep our promises. <laughs> The privilege we have, the lives that we have, have landed us in this moment due to the labor and love of other people. And even if we work at a job where we don't feel that we're being of service to anyone other than the product that we're trying to create and our families and ourselves that we're trying to support, the way we live in the world matters. Your individual choices and the political decisions that you make, these really matter to supporting each other. I think of it this way. Ever since we moved to the woods, I spend a lot of time thinking about trees and birds. There is definitely a talk on trees and birds coming in the future. But when the spring arrived this year, I learned that a robin had built her nest, well, his in her nest because robin's co-parent. And so the robins built a nest on the light at the side door of our house. And I've learned that robins are prolific. I'm, I know that two robins had at least two broods, but I think either the same robins or a different robin had three broods in this particular nest. And I hovered and Harvey called the mama bird and I made sure that I provided additional suet and I checked multiple times on the safety of the fledglings and even fashioned a box that uh, the fledglings could land in if they fell out of the nest that might give me some time to find them and replace them before predators got them. And my partner, Alex, reminded me that this wasn't my responsibility to ensure the life of the birds. And this, by the way, is coming from a man who built a wildlife ladder out of our little pool uh, for Harvey to prevent squirrel deaths. So, you know, he feels the same way. And I told him that I couldn't save the lives of all birds, but I could try to help these birds. But even then, we know that political action protect certain species and that green space is important and that we can take actions like putting little bells on our cats if we let them outside so that they don't terrorize and reduce the local bird population. We need a general and specific approach to stress reduction. Specifically, we are responsible for our little corner of the universe, our dharma, which includes our own wellness and all of the dynamic aspects of your being that need tending. Generally, we have avenues of democracy, activism, and lifestyle choices that support wellness for all. You need to tend to your birds and then you need to be in the world in a way that takes into account how your decision impacts all the birds. There are a lot of references and statistics noted in this week's episode so you might want to go to the website to click those links and check them out for yourself and i've also linked the eddie izzard video if you'd like the visuals to find out just how funny it is or if you'd like to listen to the entire audrey lord interview 
a reminder that if you're looking to practice with me online, you can go to the Patreon uh, campaign and there are some practices, both video and audio and more are coming in the future. Until next time though, namaste for now, yogis.